Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a, another really incredible guest on Unaborted today. Her name is Jennifer Lal. Um, you may have heard of some of her work. We have actually referenced her in this show before, and she is on the front lines against every new breaking edge assault against the family, against children, against the voiceless, against the vulnerable, contending for the rights of children both inside and outside the womb with people like our friend Katie Faust, uh, who I've told you before has uh, cost me donors on this show because I offended the political and maybe selfish sensibilities of pro-lifers who haven't fully applied their ethic to every life and family issue. But Jennifer's been blowing the trumpet actually on many of these issues for much longer than they've been on the front lines. She is the founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture and has dedicated herself to raising awareness about the ethical problems of big fertility, uh, the surrogacy industry, and what I call the transgender cult. A former pediatric critical care nurse, uh, Jennifer brings a unique bioethical perspective to these cultural battlefronts, which always seem, have you noticed, always seem to harm children the most. Her documentaries and films have uh, won awards and uh, focused on all of these issues. Her film, Eggs, Eggsploitation, actually was awarded Best Documentary by the California Independent Film Festival and sold in more than 30 countries. Her film, Anonymous Father's Day, a documentary film exposing the stories of women and men who were created by anonymous sperm donation. Uh, and then in 2014, she completed what is now a trilogy of films on the ethics of third-party reproduction with breeders, a subclass of women which focuses on surrogacy. And then in July 2015, a documentary short, Maggie's Story, which follows one woman's egg donation, quote-unquote, journey. Uh, and her most recent film is called The Detransition Diary, Saving Our Sisters, which was released in the fall. And I didn't even name them all. Um, a, a, a warrior and voice for the voiceless and vulnerable. Uh, Jennifer is a target of the theocracy of secular humanism, the only state religion in our country today because she's coming against their core sacraments. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Jennifer, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Seth. I'm really happy to chat with you and get to know you. Yes, I've, I've been hearing your name for a while, largely from Katie Faust. Um, and then, of course, um, Allie Stuckey really enjoyed having you and Katie on. I think both of you were actually quite formative in, <laughs> in helping direct some of her moral thinking on these issues. And now she's become completely unapologetic in uh, her opposition to the same things that you're fighting. And so you, you've actually um, served the conservative movement in a, in a very valuable way, uh, Jennifer, in bringing a lot of that um, moral clarity um, to these issues that for some reason seem to even confuse the pro-life Christians, don't they? Um, you would think they would be on our side on a lot of these things. But before I get carried away, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, why did you pick this battle? Uh, this, this can't be fun. Uh, are, are you just like a, a sucker for punishment? Uh, tell us, tell us uh, how God brought you to where, where you're at and what you're doing. 
Well, I, you know, as you mentioned, I did work in uh, pediatric clinical care nursing for a long, long time. I worked at UC San Francisco, UCLA, Children's Hospital Oakland. So, you know, I was always on the front seat of the future, the next new technology, the next new whatever. Um, And I just became more and more concerned with, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, later, um, the... um, collapse of medicine, the collapse of do no harm medicine. So I went back to graduate school and I got my master's in bioethics. And when I was in graduate school, I had this harebrained idea uh, to found the Center for Bioethics and Culture that I now run um, because I wanted everybody to know what I had learned. <laughs> I thought everybody would want to know and be as as alarmed. So I entered the this new space of nonprofit educational work at the height of Dolly, the sheep had just been cloned. George That's Bush, right. George Bush was, you know, fighting the human embryonic stem cell, human cloning debates, and I was one of the few people that was saying, "Well, how do we ha- come to have a half a million frozen embryos in the United States that are now part of this debate about developing cures to treat Michael J. Fox and Christopher Reeve?" Wow. And where are all these eggs going to come from to make all these embryos so that we can develop all these stem cell lines to make all these cures for? All the the woes. And, you know, I live in California. We we passed a huge bond initiative, you know, to fund stem cell cloning research in California. And it was sold as it was sold as cures for California. And, you know, Seth, we burned through all that money and nobody's been cured. That's right. (laughs) Yep. So, so that's kind of, and, and so in that, in that um, space of human cloning and embryo research and frozen surplus human embryos, I decided to take a deep dive into assisted reproductive technologies. Cause at the root of all this was the ability to make these embryos in the lab to right. help have babies, to cure people. So, and here I am um, 10 movies later. Wow. <laughs> and Amazing. still. Chugging along. I, uh, many of our listeners may have uh, caught what you said earlier because we have done some extensive research and episodes, uh, Jennifer, on UCSF. So it's, it was fascinating to me because I, I must have missed that in your bio that uh, you had worked at places like that because, of course, UCSF is the late-term abortion training capital of North America. Um, and some people believe maybe the world, um, you have Dr. Daniel Grossman there, which I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes Providence has a, has a sense of humor. Uh, the last name, his last name is literally Grossman, um, Grossman. And he's a, uh, he's an abortionist and an abortion trainer, uh, with Bixby center for reproductive health hosted out of UCSF. Some of the most breaking edge, Darwinistic, humanistic, Nazi-esque kind of things happen at UCSF. So I, I just think it's uh, it's fascinating and maybe providential that uh, you came from almost the the maw of the lion um, to where you are know. now. Yeah, I'm not familiar with him or his work. I apologize, but I left the UCSF many many years ago. But when I was there, we were still doing what I would call good proper medicine in the in the space of pediatric and, and critical care. You know, we opened the first pediatric bone marrow clinic, um, you know, bone marrow stem cell transplant, you know, in our in our ICU. Um, I worked with a surgeon who did the first surgery at UCSF that took the little baby out of the mother's womb 
and did the surgery and corrected the defect and then put the baby back in the womb. So when the baby was born, the baby was born healthy and well. So, you know, there was, there was a lot of good, good and exciting things that were being done there. Um, but I still was becoming, you know, because, you know, you always, especially in children, you can really push those, those, those limits, you know, you get premature babies. Well, how premature is premature? And, you know, all those complex questions around, um, you know, parental consent and, and, and new technology and, and a lot of, you know, new stuff, which is clinical trial stuff. And, you know, children can't consent. Um, to be, you know, be part of these, these projects, it's parents that have to consent. So, um, but anyway, yeah, so that's um, how I'm here. <laughs> well, consent, I mean, we'll get into that later, Jennifer consent. That really is the sacred cow, isn't it? Of, um, liberalism and, uh, squishy fake conservatives or libertarians. I mean, as if mere consent removes all moral considerations. But but UCSF is, is particularly um, on the breaking edges of the culture of death. You know, you could have a hospital staff working heroically to save a 24-week-old delivered premature baby in one wing at UCSF, Jennifer. And in the other wing of the same hospital, you could have an abortionist actively working to induce cardiac arrest with digoxin or potassium chloride inserted through the mother's abdomen, punctured through the amniotic sac, and a needle inserted into the baby's heart or skull um, to then deliver that child um, dead. Um, or not use digoxin because it might spoil the tissue, but try to do a labor induction abortion uh, so that you can get the tissue and organs intact so that you can sell them to ABR, Advanced Bioscience Resource Lab in Northern California, which was part of the whole um, undercover journalistic expose of David Delighton and Sandra Merritt and the Center for Medical Progress. So it, it, th these are all such interconnected culture of death issues that fascinating, fascinating, Jennifer, have all of the same people behind all of it. Um, if, if they're not leading all of them, then they're either sitting on each other's boards, they're all talking, they're donating to one of an, another, they're inviting one another to each other's seminars and conferences. It's, it's something I would like you to talk about too, is that we're, we talk about a lot of issues, but we have to understand it's, mm -hmm. we're, it's actually the same team. It's, it's almost as if they're different... Um, uh, captains or colonels on different battlefronts, but they're all reporting to the same general. And, and all these people share very similar philosophical assumptions, let's call it, or religious presuppositions and how they view the person. Um, and you talk a lot about that on the, on sort of the bioethics, uh, side, but, um, uh, what was your first focus with the Center for Bioethics and Culture? Um, what, what, was the, what did your organization begin doing um, against a lot of these things? Yeah, well, our first film came out of those early George Bush debates, and that was a film you mentioned, Exploitation, um, because we knew that young women were going to be required on a mass scale to donate, sell um, their eggs and... Um, so, you know, we were the first ones that were raising the alarms that this is dangerous to women. It's dangerous to their health. It's dangerous to their future fertility. Um, and then and then connecting the dots that their eggs would go on and make children that may, maybe one day want to grow up and know who their biological mother was. Um, right. So 
and I think what most people didn't realize is that egg donation, one, it's not really a lot, it's not really been adequately studied. So what we know about the risks um, are, are smaller than, than what we don't know about the risks. And when we were just writing and speaking and raising the concerns about all these healthy young women, um, that's how these women started reaching out and telling me their stories. Hey, I sold my eggs. Hey, I was in college and I saw an ad in the school newspaper. You know, my daughters went to UC Berkeley. UC Berkeley had ads in the school newspaper offering $100,000 to sell your eggs. And, um, you know, one of the young women in the film was a PhD student at the University of Kansas. And I went with her to Kansas to testify in the state, the state Senate um, against a bill that would not allow women to be paid to do this. Uh, we lost, you know, in a conservative red state like Kansas, because, you know, if we don't let women sell their eggs and we can't help people have babies, it's just that kind of crazy thinking. So that sort of, you know, was our first, uh, you know, dip of our toe in the water, if you will, in in uncovering big fertility. Wow. Wow. Um, how big of an industry is big fertility? Well, it's huge. It's multi, multi-billion and it's global. So it's not just, you know, isolated to the United States. I mean, because when you look at the, the, the legal framework, you know, what's illegal in one state or one country is legal in another and eggs and sperm and embryos are really tiny and can easily be freezed and shipped all around. So, but it's a multi, multi-billion dollar a year industry and it's trending up. You know, it's not like it's it's not like our efforts are putting the, the kibosh. Right, right. As much as I'd like to say we've killed big fertility, it's growing. Yeah, uh, it's fascinating how all this is connected, Jennifer. Every time, every time I have these conversations with someone like you or Katie, you just start seeing all the interconnectedness. Um, you know, <clears throat> how could we ignore the fact that the widespread popularization funding? and exercising of quote-unquote abortion rights um, has harmed many women's fertility. Um, so then they have to turn to in vitro fertilization or surrogacy or various ways to obtain a child. How many of those women are doing that because their prior abortion harmed some of their fertility potential? How much of it has to do with... Um, uh, well, the, the VAX word you're never supposed to say. Um, how much of it has to do with birth control and doctors telling young teenage girls that they, they, they ought to get on birth control to help within a regular cycle and then they're on it for 15 years and then they decide they want to have babies. You know, uh, there's so much interesting sort of interconnectedness on so many of, the, uh, of these issues. But one thing that Katie Faust and I have talked a lot about, and she puts it very well, Jennifer, and I'm sure you'll agree, that um, that we put the um, desires and rights, we put the desires of adults before the rights of children on both sides of the same coin. So I think Katie says that, that third-party reproductive technologies is the, is the opposite side of the same child commodifying coin. So with abortion, we say, you're unwanted child, so I can take your right to life. And then on the other side of that child commodification coin, Jennifer, we say, um, I really want this child so I can take away their right not to life, but their right to be raised by the two individuals responsible for their existence, their right to a mother and a father. You know, it, so, but you just said, Jennifer, something about the dangers for the women um, in the 
exploitation industry. Could you speak to that more? Could you unpack that more? Because a lot of people aren't aware. Yes, the rights of the child, that's primary, right? But, but how, how willing are these people to sacrifice the health care of the very women that they say they're there to serve? Yeah. Well, and, you know, my work at the Center for Bioethics and Culture has never focused on the abortion debate. And that has always been an in intentional um, decision because we are more focused in novel new biotechnologies. So what people don't realize is that egg donors, well, for, for, let me just say a few things about fertility. There's many things that affect our fertility um, and, and negatively affect our fertility. And um, men, for men and women, I mean, there's environmental things. Do I smoke? Do I drink too much alcohol? Am I, am I too fat? Am I too thin? You know, those, those kind of things. Um, you know, the biological clock is real. Did I just wait? Did I just wait too long? And I think people don't realize that our fertility is very fragile. You know, the fact that a human being, human beings can make a new life um, it's, it's pretty miraculous because things have to just work just perfectly to make that happen. It's not like we're rabbits and we just, you know, just can spit out babies all the time. So the, bracket that. So, but with, when you look at the young woman who's being paid there, we, we talk about donation, but it's not a donation. 99.9% .9 is being, there's money changing hands and the industry, big fertility will say, oh, we're not buying eggs. We're just paying her for her time. No, her time. <laughs> You're paying her for the eggs. If she doesn't produce eggs, she doesn't get a paycheck. So she's put on very, very high-dose, powerful fertility drugs in order to produce lots of eggs. Because if you're paying a woman five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand $10,000, whatever, you don't want one egg. So you're putting, you're on, you know, you want a lot of eggs. Um, and so you're going to put her on very powerful high-dose hormones to make her ovaries go into hyperdrive and produce lots of, lots of eggs. Um, and then she has to undergo a surgical procedure with anesthesia and all the risks that we know of, of that um, to have the eggs extracted. So there's all these short-term things that can go wrong. And the, the, the biggest one is called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. I'm sorry to be so technical, but that's when the ovaries just get so huge because they're producing all these eggs, you know, 20, 40, 50, 60 eggs, um, that there's all this risk of uh, stroke kidney failure, you know, just damage to your organs because, you know, water in your body has to go somewhere. And we're not meant to have all this water just out there in our bodies, you know, which is why two of the women in education had strokes. Wow. Uh, so the short-term risks are pretty well known. It's the longer-term risks we don't know. How many of these women go on and have problems with their own fertility because their own fertility was damaged by this procedure. How many women go on and have reproductive cancers? You know, one of the women in the film, the young woman who was a PhD student at Kansas, went on and developed breast cancer as a very young woman. And for the for anybody to be selected to be an egg donor, you have to check a pretty exhaustive medical history. And you won't be picked if you check the, yes, I have a medical history, a family history of breast cancer. Nobody's going to want your eggs. They're not going to pay you for your eggs. So these are women that already been screened out for not being at risk or having a history of diseases. So, you know, we, my colleagues and I did, got published in the medical literature, a case report of five women otherwise healthy no history of breast cancer, who as very young women got breast cancer and were egg donors, egg sellers, you know, just trying to raise the temperature. But of course, big fertility won't study it. 
So we have no, you know, when you sell your eggs, you're not in a, a, a database. If you donate your kidney, if I give you a kidney, I'm in a database attracts organ donors. You're in a database because you're you received an organ. You know, egg donors, there's no there's no registry. It's not on the birth certificate. The baby doesn't have, oh, here's your biological mother, egg donor, nice little Susie at you know, University of Kansas. So, you know, there's just and and then as a nurse, what really gets in my my um gets on my nerves is the fact that these women are paid. Where are you paid in the informed consent process? When your doctor is informing you, you need to do this, you need to take these medications, you need to have this surgery, you need to do these procedures. Oh, by the way, here's your $20,000. Know, informed consent has no, nothing to do with money. You know, it's transactional. It's yes, I need the money. Sure, whatever the risks are, doctor, I'll take them. I need the money. I mean, informed consent is very powerful and coercive when people need money um, and offered money. So there's this everything. You know, there's so much rotten eggs stuff. And Jennifer, on. how many women who are <clears throat> wanting to sell their eggs because they just need to make money or for whatever reason, um, how many of them are truly informed? by the medical infrastructure and powers that be um, about the some of the risks that you just detailed? Well, they're not informed. They don't have to be informed. And that's the dirty little secret. Since we haven't done any long-term, big, serious studies on women who sell their eggs, how can you inform people? We just say, oh, there's no known risks instead of there's no risk we know of because we've never studied it, you know, which is a way, way different, say, you know, way of presenting it. But even, even still, if you tell young women, we've never studied it. We don't know what the risks are. We think you'll be fine. Here's $30,000. You know, I mean, it's, it, it, you've got to take that money out of it. Yep, yep, yep. Um, you know, that was the bill in Kansas that we were trying to pass was don't let, just like an organ donor, you cannot be paid to sell your organ. It's truly a donation. Just trying to, just trying to get the legislators to move, to take the money out of it. No dice. No. If women don't get paid, they won't do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, there's so much there, Jennifer. Um, it's, <clears throat> I mean, it's identical to how the abortion industry operates, um, by the way. Um, the abortion industry has denied for years, decades, actually, that abortion has any linkage to breast cancer, uh, preterm labor in subsequent pregnancies, and mental health. Um, and there's one book they point to, and the book looks at like four, three to four studies that claim to not have found a connection between those things compared to the 70 others that found a positive connection. I mean, it's just statistical malfeasance, but it's the same thing, right? Women are not informed when they go in for an abortion of these risks and correlations to some of these negative health outcomes later, because of course, if they were, most women would reject it, <laughs> right? Do you remember the, uh, the, the raging debate, uh, Jennifer, over um, uh, post-menopausal hormone replacement? Um, back in the, what was it, like 2000 or something, nationwide frenzy because of a report that came out, it's a, it's a Women's Health Initiative or something like this, that, uh, that showed a, a small increase um, in your chance of breast cancer if you use postmenopausal hormone replacement. Uh, and and it, it was like national frenzies. I know OBs who were getting calls off the hook from women 
pissed off that they weren't told this. And yet the, the chance of breast cancer following an abortion is way higher, and yet women are never told that. Women are not told any of the risks that you just went through either. So <clears throat> we should discuss these institutions and movements as, as purely exploitative. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it gets me back to what's the what's the role of medicine? Um, you know, the egg donor isn't a patient. She's not sick. She doesn't need these medications. She doesn't need to be doing this, you know, very dangerous, harmful thing to her body. Um, and I think, well, why are, you know, and we can talk about that in the transgender. There's nothing wrong with these children. Maybe they're confused. You know, they have gender dysphoria or whatever, but but they don't need to be medicalized. You know, they need to be sorted out. You know, the young college girl doesn't need to um, sell her eggs to pay her bills. We need to, you know, we need to work on lowering college tuition and get rid of, I mean, when I look at the administrative layer in the in the University of California educational system, you know, get rid of a whole layer of administrators. And so we can drop tuition for students so they don't have to sell their, <laughs> sell parts of their body to, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> no, um, Jennifer, that, that's, but, I mean, that's, that's too that's simple. Not, again, that's not my area of ex- expertise. <laughs> but it's a, you know, what is the role of medicine? And the egg donor is not a patient. She's not sick. She has no, she has no medical benefit from, from doing this to her body. Um, you know, the, the benefit to her is, is financial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, good obstetrics and good medicine Jennifer used to function off of a Judeo-Christian worldview. That's where good medicine came from historically. It was Christians opening the hospitals. <laughs> it was Christians going into medicine and becoming doctors. And so you you had philosophical and religious uh presuppositions uh that had already dealt with and answered questions like what is the body for? Right? What does it mean to be human? Uh, well, where do where do human rights come from? But now you and I know, Jennifer, most of the medical infrastructure today is operating off of a different religion, the religion of humanism. <laughs> uh, can you talk about that and, and some of like how how has the how has the ethics shifted how we view the biology? Yeah. Well, let me just say the Hippocratic Oath is a pagan document. I mean, the opening of the oath starts by him swearing to the gods of Hygieia. And, you know, there's a whole list of gods that he is swearing his allegiance to as he's writing the Hippocratic Oath. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I can, to, can agree that medicine started as a Judeo-Christian enterprise when you look at the actual original oath. Now, of course, medical schools have altered and amended the oath and obliterated and gutted it to the point where it's not even recognizable as any kind of oath. But I I guess for me, as somebody who worked in clinical nursing for two decades, what I saw shift um, was that we we now see medicine as uh, its service providers. You know, when I was a young nurse or in nursing school in Southern California, we had patients, we had doctors, we had nurses, we had respiratory therapists. When I left nursing, I was told I had clients and customers. Um, you know, you have a healthcare provider. You know, I'm just providing healthcare. You know, you you show up to the doctor's office. You've done your Google research. You say, doctor, 
Um, my, my little boy thinks he's a girl. I want you to block his puberty. I want you to put him on cross sex hormones. You know, we are, we have, we have become consumers of medicine. You know, we don't recognize, and, and some of that's because medicine succeeded, um, in, and gave away some of their professional authority. Um, you know, the pendulum kind of spoke, you know, it used to be doctors knows best and you didn't question your doctor ever. Mm-hmm. Which, which I don't think is good either. I mean, we ought to be able to go to our doctor and say, you know, doctor, I, I think I'd rather wait a couple more weeks before I, I, tr- I try that or something. Um, to, you know, now the doctor doesn't know anything. He's just there to provide whatever we want him to provide for us. Wow. So those are the shifts that I saw. Um, and whether you want to talk about religious communities, churches, whatever, we've been, we bought into that. You know, I, I, I meet, um, I, when I, when I speak to religious audiences, it's almost overwhelmingly Catholic audiences and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Catholic. I love my Catholic friends, but I'm not Catholic, but you know, the Catholic church is much more um, open to my work because they have official church teaching. Thou shall not, you know, do IVF, thou shall not freeze embryos, you know, thou shall not all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm on, I'm an, I guess I'm in a safe safe ground when I'm in a Catholic audience. Because even if there's people in the church that say, well, I don't uh, agree with that, I can say, well, okay, that's fine. Talk, Bring it up with the Pope. Um, But when I'm in non-denominational mainline Protestant churches, I've debated Jewish rabbis before. I mean, it's it's like herding cats. Wow. You know, because there's no official, you know, no official top down, you know, all the Jews believe this and all the Protestants, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the, you know, you know, Southern, Southern Baptist general, I can't even keep track of how many Baptist churches are. So um, to me, the shifts have been in, in what, how we view and perceive medicine and who is, who is medicine in service to medicine is now in service to my wants, my desires and what my wallet, my checkbook can afford. Wow. Wow. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, Katie Faust put it well once, Jennifer, <clears throat> that, you know, with, a, with adoption, you have to have background checks to ensure that you're qualified to be an adoptive parent. But with surrogacy, the only check that has to clear is the check at the bank. Yeah. So... I, speaking to your point, right, about what I want, what I need, what I'm going to pursue, and and how I'm going to wield my wallet to get what I want and fulfill my desires, even yeah. if it compromises the rights of other people. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I, I was, I've been frankly shocked in the last year and a half of the pushback I've gotten from pro-life Christians, Jennifer, some of them donors, or were, <laughs> to my ministry when I made a moral, philosophical, and biblical religious argument against surrogacy and against IVF. Um, can you kind of start from the bottom? Um, wh- how, how do these practices operate in the real world? And then secondly, why do you think it's so hard for so many Christians to see why this is wrong? But but start from the start from the basics. What are we talking about? Exactly how does IVF happen? And and then and of course surrogacy always almost always assumes IVF as well. But but go ahead. Well, there's two ways it happens. I think you know we'll bracket it out. There's there's the husband and wife or the heterosexual couple that's doing IVF using their own egg and sperm. 
right? So the eggs have to come out of the woman's body. The sperm has to come out of the man's body. The embryos are made in the lab. And, you know, we decide how much layer of testing. Do we want boy embryos? Do we want girls? Do we want ones that have no Down syndrome, whatever? How many are we going to make? Are we going to freeze them? How many are we going to implant? Do we want twins? Do we want triplets? You know, that's, that's the husband and wife combination. All of that is very, very expensive. All of that has very high failure rate. And all of that has medical short and long-term complications. And most of the time it fails, 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 fails. So, which is why, you know, it gets back to why do we have now over a million frozen embryos in the United States? We make a lot because we know how many of them along the way are not going to end up in a live birth. Won't make now, it then the other area where I spend 99% of my time, and that's in the area of what we call third-party conception. So it, it could be a husband and wife, and she's got bum eggs, or he's got bum sperm, so you're using a sperm donor or an egg donor. It could be a single person who just says, I don't have all the bits and pieces, but I want a, parent, I want a, a child, so I'm going to buy eggs, rent a womb, or I'm a woman, I'm just going to you know get sperm from the sperm bank and be a single mother by choice. Or it can be a gay couple. So any of those kind of combinations re- requires a third party, you know, to to fill in the deficit that the that the people don't have. Um, and so then you're you're punting all those risks of health and danger um, from the mother and the baby to an egg donor, to a surrogate mother, um, and of course these these risks are also to the children. You know. We know, and my I know in our own research and all the other research people have done, that surrogate pregnancies are very high risk. A surrogate pregnancy is a much higher risk for the woman and the child than when a woman is pregnant with her own child. And if you think about organ donation, you know, this woman's body has, is pregnant with somebody else's baby. Her body is recognizing it as a foreign object. And so we know that's that causes complications to the pregnancy, preeclampsia, maternal gestational diabetes, hypertension, C-section. Um, because of the, you know, the high failure rate, surrogates often are asked, will you carry twins or triplets? You know, because if we put more in, we have more of a shot at getting a baby or a couple of babies. And that presents all kinds of health complications and ethical problems. So, and all of this is very, very expensive. You know, your basic run-of-the-mill, nilly-vanilly take-home IVF baby is a six-figure baby. You know, this, so you know, then you have the whole issues of this class. I mean, who's buying and who's selling? You know, you see Kim Kardashian on the cover with her surrogate baby, but, you know, Kim Kardashian is never offering to be the surrogate because she doesn't need, she has money to buy. And who's who's paying? You know, military wives in the United States are, you know, the bulk of our surrogates in the U.S. are military wives. Wow. Um, they're low income women. They're, you know, they're partnered with low educated men, you know. Interesting. Wow. Um, <clears throat> that reminds me something, uh, again, that Katie once said on the show, Jennifer. She said, when it comes to the best interest of the child, there's a big difference between seeking to mend parental loss and paying six figures to create it. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about that, Jennifer? Because you've, you, you've done films on these kinds of things, okay? So most people, I would say, I'd say a lot of people haven't actually met or know that they've met the children um, who were the products of these um, experimental... Uh, rearrangements of the family structure, to, to put it in one way. Um, what, what do, what's it like being on the other end? What, what do the now adults or older children of these 
creation say? I mean, like, what is it like to, to find out that all this money exchanged hands? Or what was that story out of California last year, Jennifer, with the, the gay couple suing? Um, was it the lab? Um, or the, for getting the gender wrong because they wanted a, a boy, dang it? Yeah, yeah, that that really gets to the commodification of <laughs> yeah. Buying, talk about that buying and selling children. Yeah, it is. It's very uh, you know. I mean, from beginning to end, it's eugenic. You know, you're screening the egg donor because you want you know smart, pretty, talented. You're screening the sperm donor. You want smart, pretty, talented, whatever. You know, you're you're screening the embryos because you want you know whatever you've conjured up in your mind, um, you know that you want. And so you're telling everybody you're putting in your order. And then you know we've seen this several times, not just at California, but I think the that one particular couple was just so um offensive <laughs> in in their blatant in you know entitlement if we ordered this and we got that um we had one of the women in our film big fertility she was pregnant carrying twins for a couple in spain in spain all surrogacy it's illegal so the spain spanish come to america you know open season on women here and the couple in spain um had um requested a boy and a girl and the surrogate did not know that. And when she was, the surrogate was going for one of her regular generic ultrasounds, they discovered she was pregnant with two boys. And she called the people in Spain to say, congratulations, you're having two boys. And they immediately were like mad because they had bought, paid for, ordered a boy and a girl. And they wanted to know who messed up, who made them, who was to blame for this, this wow. error. Um, and it's, you know, when, but, you know, again, when you see your physicians as a service provider and you've paid them to provide a service and then you don't get what you ordered, you, you know, people feel entitled. And, um, you know, we see it happen with um, time and time and again. And when we did the film Anonymous Father's Day, because that is looking at, you know, the end product, the children, the, yeah. and it, anonymous father say these are now adults that we interviewed you know we we asked them about how they found out how old were they were when they found out um and what all that meant to them and it's really interesting because depending on how you find out and and when you find out can be really crucial to your your own development oh my god and yeah. i would say overwhelmingly of all the donor conceived people isn't it weird we have a new category of people donor conceived people um, you know, all the donor conceived people, I think, overwhelmingly would like to see this industry just shut down. They don't think it's going to happen. Wow. However, they're happy to be alive. I mean, they're absolutely happy to be alive. They're grateful. And they might have been raised in a really good, wonderful home with good, loving parents. Um, but, you know, overwhelmingly, they're they're just not. It's just nasty wow. about that. Doesn't that go back to Jennifer to the whole like believe all victims, like just the total crap narrative that that always was? Believe all victims, but not the victims of the religion of secular humanism, only the victims of people who call themselves Republicans so we can smear the conservative movement as women hating bigots. But if, if it's the victims of the ideologies of leftism, oh, no, they have to be silenced. They, th those people need to shut up. 
um, and, and, and whether that's abortion survivors, Jennifer, that I have on my show. I'm, I'm a board member for the Abortion Survivors Network. I mean, these are, these are children who survived failed abortion attempts. They were born alive, Jennifer, in the, in the process of the abortion attempt on their own life. The left doesn't want to hear their victim stories, just like they don't want to hear the victim stories of the people whose stories you told in your anonymous, uh, what, what was, anon- say the name of the film again, Anonymous Fathers, Anonymous? Anonymous Father's Day. Of Anonymous Father's Day, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, those are people saying, well, I'm the result of these experimental, you know, things, and I don't want this to happen. I'm harmed because of this. But once yeah. again, we, we, our culture is obsessed with placing the desires and self-realization of the individual um, above the rights and, and interests of, of children and of, and of family members. Um, and when, th- I, when I testify at hearings, I often say, okay, we're going, we're going to have another story war, right? Because I'll show up, I'll be testifying against surrogacy. I'll have surrogate mothers who had bad experiences. I'll have children born of surrogacy that, you know, uh, question and object to the, the method of their conception. And of course, the other side has the happy surrogates. You know, and the children born of surrogacy you say, my mom and dad are great and our surrogate is wonderful and she's part of our family. And, and so it does, it just boils down to a story war versus us having some kind of foundational um, shared agreement about that thou shall not buy and sell people. Correct. Correct. You know, thou shall not exploit and, and risk the health of another person's body because you want something from that person's body and you've got money to, to Correct. To pay. Well said, Jennifer, well said, because that, that, that's the result of modernity and our, our relativistic, subjectively obsessed culture. Um, and you saw this shift with the advent of television, right, and media. Um, we, we moved away from being a, a, a word-based culture, right, with an, with an emphasis on linear, rational thought and argumentation to an image-based culture with the shortest attention span that demands to be entertained, and so, you know, we went from, from, the, from the macro narrative to the micro narrative, right, to the meta narrative. And, and everything is about my story and my feelings and my truth. Um, and you, and this, happened, this was very popular in the abortion wars early on. Same thing. You'd have a pro-lifer tell her story where she had an abortion and it harmed her and she regrets killing her baby. And then the pro-aborts come out and say, no, I felt empowered. It's like, well, okay, we, we need to rise above <laughs> simply w- what I thought about this experience and actually have a larger conversation about morality and rights and, 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 and our republic and our form of government. But, but the left's not interested in that conversation because they hate the founding. And they hate the ideals that built this republic because in large part, it actually prevents them from their sort of totalitarian uh, remaking man in his own image experiment. But I, I think we should use the words you're saying. I think that's valuable. I think it's important to say this is the buying and selling of human beings. Um, Katie tells a story in her book, Them Before Us, Jennifer. Um, her, the woman's name was Teresa Erickson who was sentenced to prison for selling babies. <laughs> but her crime was not selling babies to non-biologically related adults, which is a common occurrence for big fertility. Her crime was a crime of process. You see, it was Erickson's timing that caused her prison sentence. Her enterprise would have been entirely legal had the surrogacy contract been signed before conception. 
right? <laughs> Signing the contract after conception fell into the baby selling category. And so as Katie puts it in her book, only a profit blind industry could behave as if the timing of a contract would alleviate a child's genealogical bewilderment, feelings of commodification, and mother loss trauma. Can you, can you talk about that more as when we're talking about the stories of the people, of the I'm, children? I'm very familiar with Teresa Erickson. She practiced her, I, I say loose, practiced her, her craft in California. I remember when exploitation came out, she then, this was before she got busted and went to, went to jail. Um, she had a podcast and she bashed my film exploitation. Uh, Erickson was an egg donor herself. Um, and then thought, oh, this is a great way I can now make money. I can just ha- set up my own agency. She's a lawyer by trade, so she could wow. draft all the contracts. She she was a surrogate bro- broker. Um, so there was absolutely no lo- love loss for me the day I woke up and opened my inbox and saw that Teresa had been busted by the FBI for her little baby ring, baby trafficking ring. Um, but yeah, it is. It's sort of a you know a little loophole in the law, I guess. Well, this is by baby time, but no, this isn't. I spend way too much of my time reading surrogate contracts. Mm. And the whole entire contract is tied to money. And if the surrogate doesn't comply, doesn't comply, doesn't obey, doesn't follow the contract, she's in breach of the contract and therefore has to give all the money back. You know, and the and the final payment of the, the contract is the handing over of a baby. And I don't understand how anybody could read a, a surrogate contract and look me in the eye with a straight face and say, oh, no, this baby is not being bought and sold. This baby is being bought and sold. And this woman is enslaved contractually for nine months. She's told if she can travel, how far she can travel, what she can eat, what she can't eat. I mean, one surrogate had to had to eat a vegan diet for the nine months of her pregnancy because the people that had hired her and were paying her wanted to make sure that she had a vegan diet in her body for their product. Um, you know, they're told if and when they can have sexual intercourse with their partner. Um, you know, I mean, it's just everything that you can imagine. These are in contracts. These are the whims. Yeah. And there's people will say, is there a standard contract? No, because the contract depends on the whims and wishes of the purchasing parents. And what do they want? You know, one couldn't, she couldn't wear perfume. You know, it's most of them say you can't smoke. Okay, fine. You know, no fast food. Oh, all right. But you know, it's just, it's crazy. One surrogate in California, she waived her end of right decision-making in her contract. So if she was on life support during the pregnancy, the intended parents who had paid her, who she never met, she had no relationship with these people. They had ultimate decision-making on if and when life support would be removed. Wow. In a contract. And if she, and she agreed. She signed the contract because she needed the money. And who thinks they're going to have to be on life support, right? You just think, okay, sure, whatever. It's not going to happen. It won't happen. Don't worry. Wow. Well, and, and then in many of these contracts, uh, Jennifer, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the, the paying, um, uh, the, the paying intended parents who, who may or may not be biologically related, right? Who may or may not be biologically related to the child. Um, if there's something wrong with quote unquote, that baby, they can require the birth mother, the the woman gestating and growing the child to abort the baby. Is that right? 
Well, it's in the contract. They're called, you know, they always have abortion clauses. They have selective reduction. You know, we had two big cases in California where surrogates were pregnant with triplets and the purchasing parents wanted them to selectively reduce the pregnancy down. Um, We've never actually seen those contracts challenged. You know, we've never started strapping women down against their will and and force them to terminate and abort or reduce. Um, But it it is in the contract. Um, and again, it gets back to um, these women sign these contracts. Right. You know, they agree, they are agreeing to doing that. And what and what happened in these two particular cases was when when forced with they had to do it, they couldn't. Right. Wow. Yep. There's the the the, the sacred cow of consent again. Um, uh, help bring some some clarity, um, Jennifer, for Christians um, who are. I guess, laboring under this, this myth of consent as well. Um, because I, I've run into so many friends, old friends on social media, who are just shocked that I would oppose things like surrogacy um, when everyone is agreeing to it. Can you elevate that conversation for people a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I would say a few things. One is you have to remove money. You know, you you can't, again, have a serious dis- discussion around the fact that women are overwhelmingly doing this because they have economic need. Right. So there's no there's no free. When you look at informed consent, it's not freely given. Right. Um, it's under duress. So you need to remove the money, and then we can talk about that. Um, two, medicine has no business having women consent to doing something that they don't need to do to their body that we know is harmful and dangerous. You know, it gets back to the fact that a surrogate mother and an egg donor, they're not patients. Um, It's not a woman who's on her own becoming pregnant with her own child because she wants to be a mother. These are women that are doing something medically. They can't get pregnant without a medical doctor, you know, that is creating the embryos in the lab and transferring and taking the eggs out of their body. You know, you know, medicine has no business. Um, having women do things to their bodies that they have no medical need to do. And we know that egg donors and surrogate mothers have died. They've died in the United States. They've died in, in third world countries. Um, you know, we've had two surrogate mothers in California die. Uh, yeah. We've had a surrogate mother in Boise, Idaho die. She was carrying twins for a couple in Spain. The twins died. We had a, a Jane Doe surrogate die. You know, we we find the surrogate deaths because there's usually a, a GoFundMe set up. Yeah. You know, this, wow. this this woman has died and she's, you know, um, you know, I've talked to husbands. I've interviewed um, uh, and spoken to husbands whose wives were surrogates who have died. Um, we had on our podcast a young woman who when she was a little girl, her mother was a surrogate and her mother died of complications of the surrogate pregnancy. Um, So it affects, you know, it has all these, so when I think about, uh, you know, God-fearing, church-going, pro-life, you know, that kind of traditional family value crowd, I I don't understand how they can reconcile that this is okay with those other values that they think are important and they hold dear to them. Yeah, yeah. One thing that keeps uh, occurring to me, Jennifer, is, uh, again, um, our view of, of what the body is for, right? This idea of teleology or telos. Um, and, and I think much of modernity, and I, I, I call it the secular moral revolution, uh, if you will, <clears throat> um, at the end of the day kind of comes down to a fundamental disagreement, right? Or new view 
of what yeah. we're for, what our bodies are for, right? Apart from extreme medical intervention, like you just said, babies are only created through an act of sexual intercourse. And then that woman's body was created for that baby. That The uterus is the only organ in a woman's body that's not there for her. It's there for another human being. Uh, but we, we have rearranged the whole family structure and how we create children and how we create families, right? I mean, like some of the, some of the uh, organizations, right, Jennifer, that help like gay couples get babies or something are, are literally called like modern the modern family and all these things because they really are men trying to having babies. Yeah, men having cool. babies, whatever. All yeah, crazy names. It it really like when, isn't. A, when has a man ever had a baby? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, words words carry worlds, don't they? Uh, and and yeah. words assume uh, ideas and premises that often the the speaker is not aware that they're they're absorbing, but they're still operating off of that assumed worldview. Right. This is why C.S. Lewis said, Jennifer, the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued for. They're the ones being assumed <laughs> because assumed ideas can be very, very dangerous um, because you're probably operating off of that worldview and ideas, but you're not aware that you've absorbed a certain worldview, a certain set of lenses that, 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 that then has all sorts of other cultural and political and philosophical assumptions. Okay, so, so the, the common thread here is this new view of the body, and it's been called Gnosticism, you know, body self-dualism. It goes back centuries. The church labeled it a heresy <laughs> centuries ago. The old Gnostics that said the body's bad and evil and, and not and disgusting. And so the real person, you know, is our, it's our, it's our inner person. It's our consciousness. It's our thoughts, right? Our desires. And so we need to liberate the real person from, from the, the, the prison of biology. And boy, doesn't that describe IVF and surrogacy and of course the transgender alphabet mafia. So as, <laughs> as we kind of wind down the show together um, today, Jennifer, uh, can you talk about your new work on that third front of this war, the transgenderism yeah. front, its similarities, and some of the work you've been doing with your film? Well, you know, we were happily just doing our thing, and we were watching the trans stuff over there, but we thought, well, that's really not our issue because we're focused on biotech, bio, you know, emerging new technologies, medical ethics kind of stuff. And lo and behold, we found out that before children um, are transitioned, and I don't believe you can transition a child to the opposite sex, um, but before they do that, they were offer them fertility preservation. And they would say, young boy, before you become a little girl, let's freeze and bank your sperm. Or same with little girl, before you become a little boy, let's freeze and bank your eggs um, so that we can have those for you when you get older and then when you want to have children because all this transition surgery and medication is going to make you infertile it's going to sterilize you you won't lose your fertility we have preserved your fertility in the freezer so that you can then interface the assisted reproductive technology world and when we saw those collisions and they're doing um, this with we, minors right with minors yes yeah Yes, yes, yes. They're offered fertility preservation. Well, for one, I raised four children. I cannot imagine my 12-year-old son or my nine-year-old daughter being offered this, even thinking 
about having kids or wanting I mean, kids. Right. They don't even know. They don't remember even to make their bed, <laughs> but let alone make big decisions about freezing and banking their eggs or their sperm. Yeah. Um, so wow. we made so we made transmission. What's the rush to reassign gender? Which is a you know a real deep dive with medical ethics and parents and you know looking at that. And then our most recent film, The Detransition Diaries, focuses on the people who have regret who thought that they could change their bodies and live as the opposite sex only to find out that it didn't solve any of their problems. If, if in fact, it made more problems, made things even worse for them health-wise. So, um, but again, it's a, it's an improper use of medicine. There's nothing wrong with these little boys and girls physically, biologically. Um, it's a lie that you can change your sex through medicine and science yeah. and technology yeah. and surgery. Um, it's, a, it's um, you know, like you say, it's a cult it's um, it's a radical agenda that's you know clutching at our children. Yep. Um, yep. So that's yeah. fascinating what you said, Jennifer. That 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 they'll they will offer to ch- to minors extraction of their gametes uh, to freeze for future use, which is that that's fascinating because it's a tacit admission that you can't change sex and only male sperm can create a baby. So only males can provide what's needed and a and only a woman can provide eggs so only a woman can have a baby it's like this tacit admission yeah. that transgenderism is false while at the same time getting that getting those gametes to satisfy that likely future infertile person's desire for children i mean that's it's that what a fascinating admission <laughs> And it's it, it you know accentuates your your comments about the body, um, you know. On one hand, the 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 gender activists want to say there's nothing wrong with these children; they're just part of this spectrum. You know, there's 47 genders. Um, we just want them to be their authentic self. But then they also want to chop things off and put them on medication. So which is it? They're just fine. <laughs> That's this right. is just their authentic self. Leave them be. Let them. They're just diverse. Yeah, or, do right. they, or do they need medicine? Because to that's me, right. you need medicine and you need surgery because there's something wrong with you. That's right. That's right. That's right. You, you touched on, Jennifer, what actually not very con- many conservatives do. Uh, and I wish they would. And I appreciate what you just said. For, for our listeners, if you miss what she just said, it's fascinating. Uh, Jennifer saying that if the body means nothing because the real person is intangible, Right, and that's why you could be trapped in a male body, but really in, inwardly you're Sally. So I'm not Seth; I'm Sally because little Sally lives inside of me. So if that's true, and gender's fluid, and and you can change it like you do your own clothes, then why do you have to resort to physical surgical removal to make that inward person feel like a, the opposite sex? If the inward person is not biological or physical, then just change it inwardly. Why do you have to chop up the outside? So even the actions they take are once again this sort of admission that that what, of what we all know to be true, which is that we are both body and soul. Um, both things matter. Um, and, and of course, Jesus is the ultimate example of this. When he rises, he still has the holes in his hands. He doesn't rise as a spirit. 
even in his resurrection, he is still body and soul. We're image bearers of that creator, so we're body and soul. And, and the, the Psalms talk a lot about this, how like, what, like when, I, when I groaned inwardly, my bones ached. Like there's all these like comparisons in scripture of like how like physical, um, sorry, metaphysical emotional experiences affect my physical presence and experience. There's always this linking of the two. This, this is the historic Orthodox Judeo-Christian perspective on what it means to be a person. But, but this, the, whether it's, again, whether it's IVF, third-party reproductive technology, surrogacy, or transgenderism, it's this rejection of the body and what it's for and an attempt to liberate ourselves from that, almost, almost to remake ourselves anew. Um, speaking of remaking ourselves anew, <laughs> Jennifer, can you talk, we're almost done here. Can you talk a little bit about, um, what is involved in remaking yourself anew, quote unquote, through these surgeries, through the drugs? Can, cause I know we're talking about puberty blockers, cross sex hormones and surgical intervention. I think I got all of them there, but can you talk, can you give spe- specific language medication names? Can you actually de- like teach our listeners what is sure. involved in this process? What are the risks and what do people are not aware of? Well, if you're going to block puberty, that starts young, right? Because, you know, and and kids can start puberty, you know, as early as five and six or seven or eight. Um, And, you know, they're put on a drug called Lupron. Egg donors are put on Lupron. Surrogates are often put on Lupron. Um, And, you know, that's sort of a medical castration, a medical menopause. It just stops the the gonads. So the the testes are not going to mature. They're not going to produce sperm. The ovaries are not going to, you know, mature and produce eggs. That's blocked. It's stopped. Um, Then they're going to be put on the cross-sex hormones, right? Because we want the little boy to become softer and, and we want the fat to dis- redistribute. And the same with, you know, little girls, we want her to get facial hair. We want her voice to drop. You know, we want her body fat to, you know, redistribute and she kind of leans out. Um, and then if, you know, they say that, you know, once you start that, most children will progress on to um, some kind of a surgical in- intervention. For g- girls, it's overwhelmingly the double mastectomy, right? A, a surgeon, Who's, who's tasked with not doing any harm is surgically removing healthy breasts. You know, one of the woman in detransition diaries ironically speaks about how her insurance paid for her double mastectomy, which she had no medical need of, but will not pay for reconstructive surgery. You know, um, you know, women aren't signing up by, you know, big numbers for the bottom surgery. I don't want to gross out your, your audience by talking about bottom surgeries, um, you know, because there's so many complications. You know, you're making your fat, you're in the, whether it's a man getting a neovagina or if it's a woman getting the phalloplasty, you know, you're doing pretty uh, gory surgeries to fashion a, a penis on a woman and a vagina on a man. And, and overwhelmingly, they don't function properly. There's all kinds of complications. Oh, I know, shocker. I mean, I was listening to one person who had the neo-vagina and basically this man was saying, basically, if he sneezed, it, it like wanted to fall out. You know, it's like, anyway, it's this is not polite company. I'm sorry, Seth. No, no, it's, um, yeah, I, I think mean, it's, it's actually... I think it's actually necessary because um, the pulpits are quiet about this stuff, uh, Jennifer. The, the Christian church is silent, um, and all of these evil industries l- largely operate without accountability. So it's actually really important to use specific language. So I appreciate it. Continue. 
But I, I just, you know, because we're coming to the end, I want to always leave on a, a happy note. You know, recently we've just seen what uh, the South Dakota governor has signed into law, you know, legislation that says we won't do this to children here. You know, Utah's governor has signed this into law. You know, crazy states like California have become a sanctuary state so that trans identified children can flee, you know, South Dakota or Utah to come to California. Um, We had that great whistleblower who just came out last week from uh, the transgender clinic at Washington University. Now the attorney general of Missouri is called for an investigation. I've said from the very beginning, this will stop because of of lawsuits and, and malpractice and the harm, the harm that's been done. So, you know, there are a lot of people that are waking up. We have, you know, again, we have a new a, a new day. We have National Detransition Awareness Day coming up in a few weeks, early in March. You know, where pa- parents are, are standing out in front of the American Academy of Pediatrics annual conference in Anaheim a few months ago, you know, do not block kids prop puberty. Do not chop off healthy breasts. Do no harm. Do no harm. So parents are being agitated and our lawmakers are waking up and doing the right thing. Uh, So I've said that this is a culture war that will be winnable in our lifetimes. We will see this culture war won. We might not see surrogacy stopped or the buying and selling of eggs, um, you know, those kind of things that I care deeply about. But I do think we will see the transitioning, transing of children come to an end. It can't come soon enough. Yeah. If if good people will act. <laughs> Reagan once said, evil is powerless if the good are unafraid. And for so long, the good have been afraid, Jennifer, and they've been running and hiding like wounded dogs with their tail behind their legs and not wielding politics for good while the other side so passionately wields it for evil. Um, let's, let's just finish with this, Jennifer. Um, I, I want to play this, this one short clip um, and ask you one final question. This is from the absolute egghead, white, lab coat, humanistic, kooks at Vanderbilt University, uh, Jennifer, which, you know, Matt Walsh and uh, a lot of the conservative activists in, in Nashville worked very hard to fight against their transgender surgical mutilation clinic. But this is, uh, this is a very short clip. This is Dr. Shane Taylor. This went somewhat viral last year, but it's, it bears repeating because everyone needs to share this. And she's literally talking about the big moneymaker that these top and bottom surgeries are. So I'll play this short clip. Uh, and then the female to male bottom surgeries, these are huge money makers. Again, I think this has to be an underestimate if they're floating around $20,000 for a phalloplasty. There's been different things that I've read that said it could be up to $100,000. These surgeries are labor intensive. They require a lot of follow-ups. They require a lot of OR time. And they make money. They make money for the hospital. So a lot of OR time, a lot of follow-up, a lot of money, she said. A lot of money for the hospital. They're big money makers, these top and bottom surgeries. And she says the numbers she's citing are probably underestimated. She said that's got to be underestimated. Some of them might be up to $100,000. This is amazing. So I I wanted to finish with this question for you, um, Jennifer. What's the balance um, between the various motivators for transing the kids or transgenderism writ large? This is something I think about a lot. I think a lot of people are disturbed by this question. Is it, is it financial? Because they're creating cash patients for life. All of the medication these people have to be on for life after chopping off their own genitalia and chemically castrating themselves. Is, is, it, is it purely financial? Is it political? 
right? Because you can position yourself as the compassionate defender of marginalized communities. <laughs> so you can accrue power by votes, essentially, and then castigate your political opponents as bigots. This is what the left has been doing for decades, right, Jennifer? They, they position themselves as the compassionate defender of a marginalized community, whose I, but their ideas and policies are actually harming the very community they claim to be an advocate of. But it, it lets them accrue power and label conservatives as bigots. So is, is it a political motivator or is it is it ideological and religious, right? This, this just man's attempt to remake himself. Because there, 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 there's got to there be a lot of godlike power, Jennifer, that comes with reshaping people in your image. I mean, these doctors in industries that are chopping up people and remaking them, yeah, I bet you feel really powerful. I, I, bet, I bet that's almost like a sort of a weird, like, godlike um, power. So from your perspective, when we talk about some of these issues, what do you think is the driving motivator because these people are mad. They're complete kooks. They've lost their freaking minds. So that leaves people like me, Jennifer, to say, where does this come from? Is it mainly financial? Is it mainly political? Or is it more pure ideology? What, do you have any, do you any, any thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, I, I don't necessarily have proof to back up my thoughts. This is just what my gut tells me. One, yes, money is a driver. It's lucrative. You know, you hear the saying a lot, you make a patient for life. Right. You have a patient for life because you you never stop taking your cross sex hormones. You never stop having to go in and have your, you know, your bits and pieces fixed because they're falling apart and they're not functioning. Um, I think it's heavily ideological, ideologically driven. Uh, I think that is a lot of it. It's um, uh, part of it's just the whole, you know, when you look at the Biden administration and the men run, running around in, in women, women face. Um, I think a lot of it is this, it's it's perverted men um, who have fetishes, uh, uh, whether it be full-on autogynephilia, where they're sexually aroused by presenting and faking. And, you know, it's a power drive. Why do men want to be in women's prisons? Why do men want to be in women's shelters? Why do men want to compete against women in sports? You know, that is all an ideological, it's a, it's a perversion. Um, but it, it, and part of it, I think it's just, it's it's evil. It's, it's truly evil. And for some reason, it's, um, you know, things like the American Endocrine Society and the American Academy of Pediatrics and all major corporations have been captured by this woke ideology of if you're not going to be on this team, you will be penalized. You will be, you know, a hater, a bigot. You will be targeted. We will pull our business. You know, just the whole, you know, cancel culture, threatening, boycotting, making your life a living hell, which is just it's 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 ideologically driven yeah. um we need to as fast as we can reclaim our our schools so that children are just being taught to read and write and not drag queen story hour i mean that's perverse drag queen story hour who who in their right mind thinks that that's okay that's and that's good for children yep um, we need so, to fight back. That's right. I just had Kurt Cameron on the show, Jennifer, to talk about his national library reading tour, where he's just reading great books about called How You Grow and, and How You Grow. And it's not, even a, it's not even citing Bible verses. And the liberal establishment erupted. It, it, was, it was almost as if Legion was saying, how dare you try to get in front of our children? They're our children. Uh, and it, it's like, you're totally right. Why do men who dress up in sexually titillating um, stripper dress, why do they want to read books to your children so badly? 
it, 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 is, it is pure evil. It is the manifestation of evil. But as Kurt Cameron said on the show, we need to stop being the complainers of culture and start being the creators of culture. Yeah. And that's what we do with our movies. You know, we are, we are our art culture makers through our creations. Through so film. tell us where can people access your films and also support the Center for Bioethics and Culture? Yeah, our YouTube channel is where all of our films are parked. Um, it's the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. Uh, you know, if you just Google exploitation on YouTube and you you know, come to our channel, um, the center for our website is cbc-network.org. I'm very active on Twitter uh, at Jennifer Law. I'm very active on Instagram. You know, you can kind of find us all all around. A little bit on Facebook, but we're out there making our noise and making our. our Okay, so wonderful. Well, guys, uh, Jennifer's and her team's films are privately funded. Um, they need your help. We need to expose the deeds of darkness. We need to tell the other side of the story. We need to tell the stories of victims um, that the left doesn't want to hear because it compromises their ideology, their institutions, and their um, their political grab for power. So go support them. We'll put all the links to that in the show notes, Jennifer. But thank you for your time. Stand fast, sister. Keep fighting the good fight. We're fully behind you. Thank you, Seth. Thank you. Yep. Well, thank you guys for tuning into the show today. Uh, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. Give us five stars. It helps drive up the show. We really appreciate that. Go support Jennifer Lal and the Center for Bioethics and Culture. Watch some of these films. I'm telling you, they're incredible. The new, the 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 Detransition Diaries, Saving Our Sisters, released last fall. Um, Exploitation, uh, back from 2013. Um, all really powerful films. Uh, learning um, the exploitative nature of so much of the humanistic projects and obsessions of the last couple decades. Um, really important for you to be informed on this and to share it with others who are who are the target of so many of these ideas um, and industries. Um, if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. And if you want to become a member and ally of the White Rose Resistance to help us rebuild Christian resistance in America against our silent but far more deadly holocaust of abortion, go to thewhiterose.life, thewhiterose.life. Until next time. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs>